And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You get your Bibles and turn to Romans uh, chapter 8. Two verses this morning. Uh, It would be not difficult. I guess that means it'd be easy to, I don't know, craft multiple sermons just on these two verses uh, simply because we are talking about the unbeliever's mind. And we're going to look at, at some verses today uh, outside of Romans that, that, that give us some truth concerning the unbeliever's mind. But uh, if, you, if you are able, if you just stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, we're going to be, begin reading in verse 6. So this is Romans 8, verse 6, and here's what Paul writes. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hard words. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just pray for your Holy Spirit that he would be present to uh, lead us into that truth, that truth that reveals more about you, also reveals uh, some truth about us so we can understand that relationship better. So, Father, we just offer this time to you, ask that you'd give us uh, eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand these truths. And, Father, that somebody this here this morning might recognize that, yes, they have an unbelieving mind. Do a work that we can only attribute to you. And Father, uh, save them. (laughs) That's what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if you've come here for very long, you probably notice that I don't do what some might call um, evangelistic altar calls. I mean, mine are rather simple. At the end of the service, I'll have a prayer at the end of the message, and and then I'll, I'll simply have a short presentation of the gospel that has something to do with the message and you know it's not a difficult pattern i talk about what it means to those who who don't believe who are not in christ i talk about what the message has to say to those who are in christ because it almost always has something to say to all of us and of course i give you a chance to join the church now i we do one verse okay and, and if there's no response uh, i end it you're not going to find me milking an invitation Okay. Uh, due to the influence of Billy Graham and other popular evangelists, many think that if you do not have an altar call, then you have not properly preached the gospel. Now, the reason I don't put a lot of emphasis on it is that there's no biblical, biblical examples or command to do so. I assume that Jesus and the apostles, as recorded in both the gospels and Acts, that they preached the gospel. And while they often called on people to repent and believe in Christ, which I do as well, there was no indication that they ever had them lift their hands or get out of their seats and come forward. That method of an evangelism is relatively new in terms of time. It came into vogue in the early 19th century, and there were, it was popularized by Charles Finney. Uh, he held to some seriously heretical views of human nature. Ian Murray, who chronicles this in his book, Revival and Revivalism, says regard, regarding altar calls, nobody at first claimed to regard it as a means of conversion, but very soon and inevitably answering the call to the altar came to be confused with being converted. 
End quote. Murray goes on to show the damaging effects of revivalism, uh, the evangelistic message, message that emphasizes some external action that the sinner can do to be saved. Now, gospel preaching that brings sinners to despair over their inability to do anything, driving them to trust in Christ alone, that brings true conversion. Now, at the root of the problem is the biblical understanding of the spiritual condition of unbelievers and the nature of true conversion. And that's Paul's subject in our text, in our text this morning. Now, Charles Spurgeon, who was used of God to bring thousands to genuine conversion through his preaching, he understood this even at an early time in his ministry. In a sermon in 1860, he was only 24 years old, Spurgeon said that the doctrine which leaves salvation up to something that man does exalts the flesh and dishonors God. He labels that view as Arminian. He explained, what the Arminian wants to do is arouse man's activity. What we want to do is to kill it once for all, to show him that he is lost and ruined, and that his activities are not now at all equal to the work of conversion, that he must look upward. They seek to make the man stand up. We seek, seek to bring him down, make him feel that there he lies in the hand of God, and that his business is to submit himself to God and cry aloud, Lord, save or we perish. We hold that man is never so near grace as when he begins to feel that he can do nothing at all. When he says, I can pray, I can believe, I can do this, or I can do other, Marks of self-sufficiency and arrogance are on his brow, end quote. He goes on to emphasize that you cannot be saved unless God saves you. And so he urges sinners not to come forward, not to look to their own prayers, not to even trust their own faith, but to cry out to God to draw them to Christ by His grace. Only God can take away a sinner's heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that actually loves God. And if anyone complains that he cannot repent or believe, Spurgeon says these two are gifts from God. Cry out to Him to have mercy and save you. Y'all have heard me do this many times. They're from Luke 18. Uh, the, the publican and the Pharisee go into the temple to pray, and the Pharisee says, Oh, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men. <laughs> I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything that I make. I'm not, I'm not like this sinner, this publican over here. And there's the publican. Can't even lift his eyes up. He stands there. He beats his breast and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You want the sinner's prayer? There it is. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What did Jesus say? I tell you, that man went home justified, right with God. Not the Pharisee who considered himself right with God. No, it's the man that recognized that he needed the mercy of God. Now, the frequent result of emphasis on doing something, such as coming forward to receive Christ, is that it promotes false conversions, it gives false assurance to those who did it. They think that they're saved because they came forward or, or prayed a particular prayer. But such a, a decision alone is no evidence of the new birth. 
As Paul makes clear in Romans 8, the genuine result of being saved is that we walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Now in verse 5, Paul sets forth the contrast between those two groups. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To be according to the flesh means to live under the domination of the flesh and to obey its dictates. It's to live with a self-centered focus, not a God-centered focus. Now, another way of saying it is that such people are in the flesh. That's, what, how, that's the language Paul uses there in verse 8. They live in the sphere of the flesh. Such people may believe in God and be very religious, but they, lead, they live to please themselves. Those in the flesh do not set their minds on the things of the Spirit, which are the truths that are revealed to us in God's Word. Now, in verse 6, Paul explains that the reason those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh is that they are spiritually dead. He says, for the mind set on the flesh is death. And then in verses 7 and 8, he explains further why the mind set on the flesh is spiritually dead and headed toward eternal death. The reason is because it is hostile toward God, not subject to His law and displeasing to Him. So these verses reveal Paul's insight into the unbelieving mind. This is the mind of the sinner, the mind who is not of the one who is not in Christ. Now here's the main point this morning. The mind set on the flesh is spiritually dead and thus an enemy of God because it does not and cannot submit to Him or please Him. Now, three major points this morning. Number one, the mind set on the flesh is spiritually dead and headed toward eternal death because it is an enemy of God. Just a couple of sub-points here. A, the mind set on the flesh is spiritually dead and headed toward eternal spiritual death. In, in, in verse 6a, says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Now, we looked at this verse last week, and we saw that outside of Christ... Everyone is spiritually dead, and so I only mention this in passing because it's a foundation for verse 7. To be spiritually dead means to be separated from God and the eternal life that only He can give. In Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, Paul tells us that we are dead in our sins before graciously imparting new life to us. And if we die in that state of spiritual death, then we enter into the second death or that eternal separation from God. Some try to avoid the implications of what it means to be spiritually dead by saying, hey, it's only a metaphor, don't press it too far. But the metaphor was not chosen without reason. And it does convey something important. And I'm going to talk about this more in just a minute, but that is that sinners are spiritually unable to seek God or to please Him. Spiritually dead people are cut off from understanding the things of the Spirit, including the gospel. Now, this is a natural condition of every person descended from Adam since the fall, except Jesus, of course. So B, the mind set on the flesh is not spiritually neutral, but is an enemy of God. Verse 7a, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Paul uses the same word hostile to describe a deed of the flesh in Galatians 5.20 and the perpetual hostility between the Jew and the Gentile in Ephesians chapter 2. 
It's the opposite of love. Unbelievers do not love God. They hate Him. He is their enemy. Now, perhaps you're thinking, but I know many unbelievers who don't hate God. They don't have anything against Him. But the Bible draws a line. Either you are a God lover because He has saved you from your sins, or you're a God hater because you do not want Him to rule over you. Now, unbelievers may be religious, but invariably it's a religion as they like it. They pick and choose their kind of God that suits their preferences. They come to God on their own terms, by their own good works, and, and they use Him for their own selfish purposes. God created us in His own image. They return the favor, and they create a God in their own image. So unbelievers are not spiritually neutral. They may be indifferent toward God, but that's often the worst form of hatred. Spurgeon illustrates this by supposing that someone wrote you a letter, uh, but you paid no attention to it. Well, when did it come? Oh, last Monday. Now, have you read it? Oh, no, I don't read his letters anymore. You've had a good many of them then. Oh, yes, hundreds. Uh, what have you done with them? I haven't done anything with them. I leave them alone and I don't bother to read them. Well, when, when you did read one, what was it about? Well, it was about wishing to be at peace with me and desiring to do me good. He spoke of my being in great danger and said that he could help me and of being of my being poor, and he offered to make me rich. You mean he talked like that, and you've never read any more of his letters? You must really hate that person. Indifference towards this kind and merciful God is to hate him. Also, unbelievers often think that a holy God is just too strict, too foreboding. They prefer a God who is more cuddly and user-friendly. They think that God's justice in condemning sinners is too severe. They protest, surely I've got my faults, but God shouldn't judge me for being imperfect. That's not fair. They think that God's truth is too inflexible. They wish He would be more tolerant as they are. They say, I believe that as long as a person is sincere and does his best, he will go to heaven. Well, they even think that God's mercy through the cross is offensive because it implies that they cannot save themselves by their own good works. But all of these things that I've just talked about puts this person who sets his mind on the flesh at odds with God. It's called hostility. Now, you should always be careful before you make an enemy, especially if that enemy is much stronger and smarter than you are. But the problem is, we are all born at enmity with God. Now, you would think that everyone would be scrambling around to figure out how to become God's friend and end this hostility. But instead, unbelievers brazenly defy God and they disobey His law, they boastfully oppose God's truth as it's revealed in His Word, asserting that they know more about spiritual matters than He does. As I've already said, they make God in their own image. I've even heard professing Christians who say, my God isn't a God of judgment, He's a God of love. Well, I hate to tell you this, but your God then is not the God of the Bible. 
Now, by way of contrast, those who set their minds on the Spirit, that's believers in Christ, they're not God-haters, they're God-lovers. We seek to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love the Savior who left the glory of heaven to suffer and die on the cross in our place. We don't want to do anything to hinder the fellowship that we now enjoy with Him because of His grace. So Paul shows that the mind set on the flesh is not spiritually neutral. Rather, it is separated from God. It is dead and actively opposed to Him as an enemy. Well, also, number two, the mind set on the flesh does not submit to God. This is verse 7b, for it does not submit to God's law, referring to the mind of the sinner, mind set on the flesh. God's law reveals who He is and how He commands us to live. Now, we are no longer under the, the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. We are under the law of Christ. We are subject to the two great commandments, right? To love God with our entire being and to love our neighbors as ourselves. The New Testament gives many more specific commands about how to do those first two commands. In other words, how we're to live as believers in Christ. But the unbelieving mind does not subject itself to God's Word. Its mindset is, I love myself and its will First and foremost, unbelievers often say that they don't believe because of intellectual reasons. Give me enough proof and I'll believe. Uh, if I see a real miracle, then I'll believe. Or if God would just speak to me from heaven, then I'd believe. But folks, God has given sufficient evidence through creation and through the biblical witness to Jesus Christ. But unbelievers, Paul tells us back in chapter 1, they suppress that truth in unrighteousness because they do not want to submit to God. The root of unbelief is not intellectual. The Bible says it is moral. They do not want God to rule over them. They do not want to obey His Word. Now, by implied contrast... Those, who minds, those whose minds are set on the Spirit, they do submit to God's Word. John Calvin describes his own conversion from Catholicism by saying, God, did a sudden con God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. A good test of whether your mind is set on the flesh or on the Spirit is, do I have a teachable heart in submission to God's Word. Now, the test of having a teachable heart, that comes when you encounter some of the difficult doctrines in Scripture. When you come across doctrines such as the Trinity, or hell, or predestination, or suffering, do you fight God regarding these truths, or do you submit to Him? Speaking of difficult doctrines, this leads, to, leads us to a, a difficult truth which many who profess to know Christ, they do not accept. And that's point number three. The mind set on the flesh cannot submit to God or please Him. Paul doesn't stop by saying that those who are in the flesh do not submit to God's law. He goes further by saying that they are not even able to do so. Then in verse 8 he says, and those who are in the flesh cannot 
please God. Now, cannot is a word of ability. In this case, it's inability. It goes back to the matter of a sinner's fallen nature in Adam, which is incapable of obeying God or pleasing Him. Picture a pig. A pig is free to act in line with its pig nature because it's a pig. But he's not going to act in line with the human nature because it's foreign to him. Well, also, fallen sinners, they are free to act uh, in line with their flesh, but not in line with the Holy Spirit whom they do not possess. But many contend for so-called free will. They argue that God has given all people the ability to choose salvation. Uh, typically, this is known as provenient grace. I don't have time to go into all, all the arguments, but uh, I will say that biblically they are weak. Suffice it to say that elsewhere, Paul also teaches human inability to respond to the gospel apart from God's gracious, enabling power. Uh, this is clear from his reference to sinners being dead in their sins in Ephesians 2 or being blinded by Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Dead people cannot choose to live. Blind people cannot choose to see. Now, one of my favorite verses where Paul explains this is 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, the natural person, talking about the person of the flesh, the natural, natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So that's the not. He doesn't do it. And before, they are foolishness to him. So he doesn't accept them. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Again, Paul draws attention to the sinner's inability. Jesus also taught that no one can come to him unless the Father grants it and draws him. That's John 6, 44 and 65. He pointedly asked the skeptical Jews in John 8, Why do you not understand what I am saying? And he answered his own question. It is because you cannot hear my word. Obviously, they could hear what he was saying, but they lacked the spiritual ability to hear with obedience. And since those in the flesh cannot please God, and faith pleases God, right? Hebrews eleven six. without faith it is impossible to please God. Sinners on their own cannot believe in Jesus Christ for salvation by their own free will, apart from God's special saving grace. The fallen human will is not free. It's in bondage. That's, that's the import. That's the message of Martin Luther's book, Bondage of the Will. <laughs> our wills are bound by our nature. What this means is that in the order of salvation, regeneration precedes faith. Do you remember what Jesus told Nicodemus? Unless you are born again... You can't even see the kingdom of God, much less enter it, unless you're born again. That's regeneration. Well, the frequent response to this biblical truth is, that's not fair. God commands sinners to repent and believe, but they aren't capable of repenting and believing unless He grants it. 
couple of things here. First, be careful about accusing the sovereign of the universe of being unfair. We are going to cover this in detail in Romans chapter 9. You want fairness. God would be perfectly fair to send every one of us here to hell directly right now without any opportunity to receive mercy. That is what we deserve. You understand fair goes with justice. You really want the justice of God in your life? Or do you want the grace of God and His mercy based on the righteousness of Christ? Whew, big difference. Well, second, I want to share a story that, that, Pete, that speaks to this issue. During the 1840s, at a time of revival in Savannah, Georgia, not too far, far away, a young man complained to the pastor whose name was B.M. Palmer. He says, you preachers are the most contradictory men in the world. You say and you unsay, just as it pleases you, without the least pretension of consistency. Why, you said in your sermon that sinners were perfectly helpless in themselves, utterly unable to repent or believe, and then turned around and said that they would all be damned if they did not. Pastor Palmer decided that it would be best to reply in an offhand or seemingly indifferent way, so he said, Well, my dear friend, there is no use in quarreling over this matter. Either you can or you cannot. If you can, all I have to say is that I hope you will just go and do it. Now, Pastor Palmer didn't raise his eyes from his writing, which he continued to do as he spoke, so he didn't know the effect that his words might have on this young man. And after a moment's silence, a moment of silence, he heard a choking cry. Then the young man said, I have been trying my best for three whole days and cannot. Ah, responded Palmer, raising his eyes and putting his pen down. That puts a different face upon it. And we will go then and tell the difficulty straight to God. Then he reports, we, we knelt down, and I prayed as though this was the first time in human history that this trouble had ever arisen, that there was a soul in the most desperate extremity which must believe or perish and hopelessly unable of itself to do it. That consequently, it was just the case for divine interposition and pleading most earnestly for the fulfillment of the divine promise. Upon arising, I offered not one single word of comfort or advice. So I left my friend in the powerlessness of himself in the hands of God as the only helper. In a short time, he came through the struggle, rejoicing in the hope of eternal life. End quote. The unbelieving mind is spiritually dead and it's hostile toward God. It does not and cannot submit to Him or please Him. Now, this means that salvation is not a matter of human will but rather of God's imparting new life to those who are spiritually dead. And this means that salvation is not even a joint project between God and man. Rather, salvation, as Jonah says, is of the Lord. Now, since salvation is completely God's doing, who gets the glory? God does. Two brief applications here. First, these truths have important implications for how we share the gospel. 
Don't get overly enmeshed in the intellectual debates about evolution or the existence of God or the problem of suffering and evil. Rather, zero in on the person's rebellion and refusal to submit to God. While you should be as clear and cogent as possible, salvation is not a matter of convincing someone with persuasive arguments. Rather, it's a matter of God's opening blind eyes and changing hardened hearts. So pray as you share that God would grant repentance and saving faith. Well, second, these truths pertain to how we evaluate ourselves. Am I reconciled to God as His friend, or am I hostile toward Him? Do I subject myself to God's Word? Do I seek to please Him with my thoughts, my words, and my deeds? Is my mind set on the Spirit and not on the flesh? May God grant that these evidences of His grace would be growing in each of us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you just to acknowledge that you are God and we are not. And your ways are not our ways. Uh, Our thoughts are certainly not your thoughts. And so we humbly bow the knee now and ask for your help. Father, help us to understand these truths. And if there's anybody in here that realize that there is still enmity between them and between you, that hostility is still there. The Bible says that Jesus is the only remedy for that. Give them a view of who Jesus really is this morning. I pray that you would soften hearts for your honor, for your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you recognize that you are still an enemy of God, you've never been reconciled, and that reconciliation only comes one way, it's through the blood of Jesus. It's trusting in what Jesus did, what He accomplished on the cross. You can bring nothing. I hope I've made that clear. There's nothing that you can bring God that's going to go, oh, I want you to, you know, you know, no. You were created in His image. You have value, but you're still separated Him because of sin. You need to ask God to forgive you your sins, and you need to trust what Jesus did on the cross. He did something for us 2,000 years ago that we could never do for ourselves. And it's because of His righteousness, His doing what is right, that will then be credited to your account when you trust Him, and you will be clean. How many remember the time you first cried out to God? to forgive you of your sins, change your heart. Did you feel like a newborn baby? I mean, the guilt was just gone. There was a freedom there like you have never experienced before. I had this happen with a young man here. Um, it, was after, it was after a revolution. He's now in full-time ministry. This was, she was 10 years ago. And I knew him and I knew his dad. And he came forward and so I grabbed him and we went and talked. I shared some scripture with him. And I told him, this is up to you. I'm not going to pray. I'm going to go outside. I'm going to pray for you. You get down on your knees and you talk to God. About 10 minutes later, he came out and I just looked at him and I said, well, he says, I don't know if I'm saved or not, but I've never felt such peace in my entire life. I said, baby, you're saved. That's the only way you get that peace. God removes that guilt. Uh, If you're living in guilt today, maybe you need Jesus. Guess what? If you're a believer, you can still live in guilt because guess what? We still sin. If you're a believer, believer in, in, in living in, under guilt today, go to Jesus. <laughs> He's where you need to head. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. 
You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com. <laughs>